The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub online. My name is Eve Patton. I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which for anybody joining us for the first time this evening is Trinity's Institute for Research in the Arts and Humanities. So in the hub, we draw together a wide range of disciplines from law to literature to history. Uh, and we also bring the outcomes and the insights of the research that we do to an external audience through our public humanities program. Uh, the Trinity Long Room Hub's Behind the Headlines series, sponsored by the John Pollard Foundation, is a signature series for us. Uh, it has been running for five years, and in some of our previous panels, uh, members of the audience may remember, we have turned our attention to the subject of Northern Ireland uh, within the larger framework of our Futures of Ireland research theme. In this evening's discussion, we are looking at Northern Ireland once again, but this time with a very particular focus on the role of interdependence on the islands. It is now, uh, as you know, 23 years since the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, indeed, some recent commentators have suggested that the date of 1998 rather than 1921 might be regarded as a true beginning for Northern Ireland. In those 23 years, uh, and particularly in the months since Brexit, obviously the agreement has been tested, uh, but it remains intact. And despite many of the visible and violent scenes that we've witnessed in Belfast recently, there is a strong case to be made for continuing to think positively about progress in Northern Ireland and also to consider the important role of interdependence. Northern Ireland does not exist in a vacuum, but within a constellation of nations, of regions, uh, of legislative bodies, and of communities that, of course, must be part of the conversation, must be part of this forward momentum. How is this to be achieved or sustained? What kind of vocabulary does it require? Well, in this evening's panel, we have perspectives from four speakers who are going to reflect on prospects and challenges for interdependence and think more broadly about the future of Northern Ireland in this context. Uh, and I will introduce them to you now in the order that they're going to speak. Uh, I want to welcome very warmly to Trinity, Professor Pete Sherlow. Pete is director at the University of Liverpool's Institute of Irish Studies, and he was formerly deputy director of the Institute for Conflict Transformation and Social Justice at Queen's University in Belfast. Uh, Pete, uh, as many of you will know, has recently established the digital constitutional platform in uh, the Institute of Irish Studies in Liverpool. And this brings together pro-union, pro-unity and, and various alternative voices uh, to uh, address constitutional and related questions. I hope that we will 
have a link on that for you, but I know that uh, the platform has, has received wide and positive coverage in the press. Our second speaker is Rory Montgomery, and Rory is no stranger, I think, to the Hub's audience. He is currently policy fellow in residence at the Trinity Longroom Hub. Uh, until recently, Rory was second secretary general at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade with responsibility for EU issues, including, God help him, Brexit. Uh, and before that, Rory has served as EU advisor to Enda Kenny, uh, as Taoiseach, uh, as ambassador to France and as permanent representative to the European Union. Um, but I think more pertinent to our discussion this evening, Rory was also a member of the Irish team which negotiated the Good Friday Agreement and the establishment of North-South institutions. So we look forward very much to hearing from you, Rory, and thank you for joining us. Uh, our third speaker is Claire Sugden, and Claire, I want to extend a very warm welcome to you uh, to Trinity. Claire is the only elected independent unionist member of the Legislative Assembly. She's MLA for East Londonderry, uh, and she has served as Minister of Justice in the fourth Northern Ireland Executive uh, that ran from May 2016 to March 2017 uh, under Northern Ireland First Minister Arlene Foster and the Deputy First Minister at that time, uh, of course, the late Martin McGuinness. She has wide experience of Northern Ireland, right from grassroots level with uh, the view from local councils through to transatlantic perspectives, having participated in the Washington Island programme in, in 2010. Claire, we're really looking forward to hearing you this evening. And our fourth and final speaker, again, no stranger to this audience, is Etain Tanham. Etain is Associate Professor in International Peace Studies at Trinity in Dublin. Uh, her main area of expertise is British-Irish cooperation and cross-border cooperation with emphasis on Brexit's impact. Uh, she is a member of the University College London Working Group on Referendums on the Island of Ireland, uh, and many of you I know will have been following the progress and the reporting of this group in, in the media. And she is also working with ARANS. ARANS is the project for analyzing and researching unification on the island of Ireland. Uh, and this project is led by the Royal Irish Academy in partnership with the University of Notre Dame. So Etain, thank you for joining us. We're looking forward to hearing from all the speakers in what I know is going to be a very insightful and also a very respectful discussion. And uh, to our audience who will appreciate a respectful discussion on this topic, uh, I'll just give you a brief reminder of the format. Uh, each of the speakers has 10 minutes and 10 minutes only to talk to you. And then after all four speakers have finished, we'll open up to the floor to Q&A or comments from all of you. So please do submit any questions or comments, keeping them as brief as you can, uh, given the, the complexity of this topic. Please use the, the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And if you can, uh, uh, please do say something about yourself, give us your name, tell us where you are uh, writing from. If you're following us on Facebook, you can also use the um, panel for questions that's in the comments section, and we'll take as many of these questions as we can, given uh, the time pressures. 
We're also, of course, streaming on our US media platform, Irish Central. So my greetings to, to that audience. And as always, we will be on Twitter. If you are tweeting, uh, we have the handle at TLR Hub and we use the hashtag Hub Matters, hashtag Hub Matters. And again, we'll put those details in the chat for you so you can check them if you need to. So with all the housekeeping done, I uh, want to welcome again our audience and welcome our four speakers. And I will now hand over to Pete Sherlow. Pete. Thank you very much, Eve. Uh, I'm on muted, yeah. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, you've set me an unenviable task as somebody from Belfast, which is to speak for only 10 minutes. That's a, that's a Herculean task for most Belfast people. I'll probably be through the first sentence in five minutes, it'll be up. Uh, so anyway, first of all, I hope tonight uh, is, is, is a positive engagement for us all. And I think in particular, uh, I really hope to get across the, the message that it is a falsehood that people from the pro-union community do not engage in debates about constitutional issues and issues to do with uh, interdependence. In the last eight weeks, I have noted 29 examples of engagement by conference and workshop. And as Eve has kindly mentioned, uh, last month we launched a digital platform on constitutional issues, which contain around 130 pro-union and pro-unity arguments. Uh, I, I think it's also important to understand that uh, much of the pro-union community is understood by external views. And I find that at times those views uh, undermine the name, the reputation, and the capacity to understand the progressive thinking that is located within that community. Uh, at, at worst, uh, pro-union people who are progressive are rendered invisible. And I think there's a misunderstanding, uh, or sometimes there's a perception that progressive thinking people who are pro-union are a minority. And I actually think that's not the case. This is the reality, of course, is uh, in the surveys that we do that the most socially liberal people are pro-union uh, and, and uh, many of those people who are pro-union don't vote. So, so let's not measure that community by political representatives, except for Claire, of course. And, uh, but, 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 but let's understand there's much more diversity within that community. So the other thing I want to get across tonight is uh, about choice, the question of choice as we have these debates and as we think about the future. Uh, community commentators and politicians, those of them who believe that the two parts of our island are composed of bounded ethno-national groups and those people who wish to promote essentialist precepts about our identities. They should, of course, press ahead with a binary constitutional referendum. That is their understanding of democracy, the politics of 50 plus one. But I would suggest that identity type politics within this debate does that a little more than promote discord and disharmony. I think on the other hand, if we understand and promote multicultural hybridity and connectivity, as the guiding ideas for the negotiation of our future, if we get into the very process of talking about social relationships, we then foster something very different. We, 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 we shouldn't be using the politics of 100 years ago to explain the politics of today. Uh, I'm sure somebody in 1921 uh, would never have thought about the internet, social media, globalization, and the world we live in today. 16% of the workforce in the Republic, for example, or from ethnic minority backgrounds, it's a, it's a very different place. I think if we do that, I think if we promote multiculturalism and hybridity and connectivity, then what we get into is something that is much less dramatic 
as a trajectory of human change. I think we identify the complexity of identification processes and we give greater agency to the definition and how we relate to each other and how we understand ourselves. In this respect, the focus on relationships rather than referenda is more likely to unite the people who live in these islands. So I have a set of PowerPoints, which somebody will uh, put up very soon. And given the 10 minute rule, I will hurtle through these uh, like there's no tomorrow. And, uh, and these, are, of course, are available uh, on request uh, for everybody else. So what I've done is uh, in uh, slides one to eight, which, which, as I said, I'll go through very quickly, is uh, this is the reaction you get if you have that binary identity type project. I want to go through slides one to eight, how sections of unionism or pro-unionism will apply whenever they are told Northern Ireland is a backwater or Northern Ireland is a basket case. In the next series of slides, what I want to do is appraise and praise the peace process. And as Eve has already said, the 1998 Belfast Agreement remains this site. It remains this site. There's no other site, I don't think, through which we afford greater agency to change and progress. And then in the final three slides, I want to invoke the concept of independence and how we stretch beyond the politics of our miseration. So the, 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 these first eight slides are what I receive, my phone beeps or my email beeps, whenever somebody who supports Irish unity makes comments about Northern Ireland. So one of these that arrived recently was, well, look, here's Eurostat figures. Ireland has much greater per capita debt than uh, the UK. This country is not capable of absorbing us in terms of the subvention and in terms of our standards of living, etc. The next slide, please. What did this came across recently, where people in social media were talking about racism within unionism, and the reaction that came back was the latest Eurostat data yet again. This was this was this was trending all across social media that people of ethnic minority status in Ireland were twice as likely to state negative and hostile uh, comments about their skin color, their ethnicity, and their racism. So th th this is the binary. If you say Northern Ireland's racist, the UK is racist. Somebody goes off and finds the data which says something very different. It keeps us within this binary uh, conversation. Next slide, please. Uh, recently in, in this debate, you'll have seen about, you know, who's better off. Uh, you know, we do know who's better off on this island, middle class people, uh, the people who are not well off and have not benefited from, from, from the two states are those on low incomes or what we would used to call the working class. So you get this type of reaction House prices are cheaper in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland's the most cheaper place to live. You have more disposable com uh, condo, uh, uh, more disposable income. And of course, the argument here, of course, is, is that we have a united Ireland. We will have these spiraling housing costs, and this will detract from our well-being. Because we have to realize uh, much of what is pro-unionism is not an identity question. It actually is a question of material well-being. Thank you. Next slide, please. Yet again, the same thing, just you know, another example of, of, of when people say about, uh, you know, the South's a better place to live, then you get this type of uh, analysis, which comes through in terms of renting the, 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 the much higher levels and costs of renting uh, across the Republic. Thank you. Of course, one of the other big issues is that of the National Health Service. And recently somebody posted that uh, you pay for the health service in Northern Ireland, it's not free. Uh, it, it, well, of course, we do it our national insurance, which is also our pensions and other uh, maternity payments, et cetera, et cetera. 
But then this appeared in social media. Somebody had gone onto the site and found, and you can read this at, uh, whenever you get the, the slides, you know, the cost of going to the doctor, how much you pay, people in the South forego going to the doctor if they, if they can't, uh, if, it, if it incurs uh, costs in, in that way. And you see there at the bottom, uh, one in four adults in the South have said they wouldn't go to a GP uh, because of cost compared to one in 50 in the UK. So we get this binary uh, that constantly reflects itself when we have that high level identity type uh, debate. It's not a debate, obviously it's, uh, it's something uh, below that. Uh, next video, please. Of course, the other issue is the North is dysfunctional. It has high, low pay economy. And of course, what appears then is this, which is the percentage share of people who are working poor, those who are less than 40% of the median wage, Ireland, the worst in Europe, as, as, the, as this, uh, the intention of sending this uh, graphic out, et cetera. So if we move on to the next slide, you know, uh, you know you'll also find within pro-unionism or unionism that they will use, for example, this central bank, the Irish Central Bank uh, report recently in their letters, in which you know evidence will be used from Southern commentators also that consumption per head is much higher in the UK than it is in Ireland. So this is a circular, continual, two legs good, four legs bad, Orwellian type uh, debate or discussion or argument, which really doesn't do very much at all to secure any thinking about interdependence or how we build uh, better relationships across the world. Next slide, please. And of course, here's another example of this with uh, other Southern commentators who have said standard of living is higher in Northern Ireland. And within this, you know, the, some of this more positive stuff about the new, the new economy post-conflict in terms of wage growth. And, you know, Belfast has developed as this very high-tech uh, city in which you do see uh, the, 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 this high level of, of, of high-paid work and uh, software investment within the city. And of course, one of the comments I noticed recently on social media, social media was the last line, uh, not bad for a city in which a quarter of the retail space was destroyed during the conflict. So when you're talking about progress, you're talking about development within the post-conflict economy, and it relates straight back to the conflict, it relates straight back to that really harsh and, and quite bitter at times uh, exchange of ideas and perspectives. So if we move on, you know, we've had this peace process, this is the second way we can start to really start this conversation. You know, the, the significant growth in the share of Catholics within the PSNI. If we look at the next slide then, you know, this really significant growth since 2009, over 70% for both communities who are have high level confidence in policing in Northern Ireland. The type of things that aren't in these debates, the change in the nature of relationships, the change in the way institutions of the state are now welcomed and supported in an inter-community way okay uh also the, the the argument about when we talk we, we hear all of this that that people are talking about the constitutional question like never before the constitutional question is never off people's lips this is from our last uh household survey of northern ireland and we group people by age you can see very clearly that the issues for young people are education economy and employment and for older people slightly more relevance for them is health, poverty, and welfare. You know, within those two communities, 3.2 and 5.9% say the constitutional issue is the most important issue to them. So we move on to the next slide. Then, you know, let's look at this. You know, we're told there's this Brexit effect. We're told that Brexit's the game changer. These are the surveys which ask people in blue 
do you wish to remain in the UK in orange, ironically? Do you want to join the, do you want to have a United Ireland? And you can see since 2016, through the lifetime of Brexit, that there's been virtually no decline in the support within those surveys for staying within the UK. What's critically important here is that the, is that the share of people who support remaining in the UK is much more likely to have Catholic and immigrant support than is the share of those people from those backgrounds, or sorry, Protestants and immigrants who support unification. So, so we have this data, we have this evidence, but we still have this, this, this perception that the, 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 the growth for Irish unification is growing very dramatically. That's not saying this won't change. That's not saying the demographic shifts won't alter that position, but we have to have evidence as the basis of the conversations that we are going to have. Next slide, please. Let's just look at Westminster elections if you don't believe the surveys. The blue line is the UUP and the DUP. The orange line is the Sinn Féin and the SDLP. And the bottom line is Alliance. The biggest shift in the last two decades in elections in Northern Ireland has been the growth of the Alliance Party. We, we, we talk about unionists have lost the majority within elections, but nationalist vote has also gone down. There's something changing here that that, that more liberal, social, the engaged younger generation is starting to vote in different ways. That is a massive shift from nearly 3% right through to uh, nearly 20%. So we move on to the last couple of slides very quickly. So what we talk about when we mean interdependence is we're talking about these questions of getting beyond the binary. We're talking about building up the, the Good Friday Agreement. We're talking about enhancing all Ireland relationships. Go to the next slide very quickly. We're talking about one of the things that's missed in the protocol, the argument about sea borders, et cetera. The, 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 the protocol actually extends the Good Friday Agreement. It, it, it talks about these north-south levels of cooperation, which are critically important. And I know I've run over a very last slide, which I'll do very quickly. So one of the things we need to do is frame this debate differently. For those who are pro-union, greater north-south connection, building interdependence across this island can make the border so invisible that the desire for unification abates. For those who are pro-unity, greater independence can reestablish connections cast asunder by partition. And this type of interdependence, building all island relationships, building it within a, an agreed way, is the antidote to this politics of immiseration and dissidence that has crippled Northern Ireland and Ireland for so long. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed, Pete. That was fascinating, I must say. And um, as it happens, like Attain, um, I'm a member of the steering committee of this Aaron's uh, project run by the Royal Irish Academy um, and the uh, University of Notre Dame, uh, analysing and researching Ireland, North and South. And one of its objectives is precisely to prepare your detailed objective research on many of the topics that you've, you've mentioned. And in fact, I'll be citing one of the articles on health systems north and south in, in a couple of moments. Um, as, as Eve said, um, I, I worked for a number of years, arguably the best years of my life, um, on Northern Ireland issues in the 1990s and into the early 2000s. Um, and as well as the Friday Agreement itself, I was involved for the year after the agreement, uh, very much on uh, establishing the North-South Ministerial Council and the implementation uh, bodies, which were such an important part uh, of the agreement. So I found it very interesting preparing this evening to take a look, an overview of the state of North-South cooperation. Uh, and I have a few 
um, you know, broadly positive observations to make, and others which I wouldn't call negative, but which are perhaps a little bit more challenging or, or questioning. I mean, the first positive point I want to make is that, as I'm sure a vast number of people in the audience tonight uh, will know, that there is a huge reservoir of existing cooperation and goodwill uh, on the island across many, many sectors. I mean, there are bodies which long predate the establishment of two separate um, entities on the island. Um, sport, people talk about a lot, rugby and cricket and hockey, the GAA, of course, as well. Um, but there are other bodies as well, the, the Royal Irish Academy, um, for example, the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. So there are a range of All-Ireland bodies. Uh, and then secondly, there are All-Ireland all bodies. And then secondly, there are bodies set up specially to promote cooperation and understanding North and South. Just to name, name a few, the Centre for Cross-Border Studies in Armagh, Cooperation Ireland, the large-scale NGO, the uh, IBEC, CBI, Northern Ireland, Joint Council, etc. Though it is strange when you look at it that there are some some anomalies, if you like, in this, that racehorses are dealt with on an all-island basis. This is something which is very dear to my heart. But poodles and other breeds of uh, pedigree dog, um, there's a partition um, between, uh, between, between, between the two. Um, now, um, in my own experience as well, I mean, the, the North-South contacts um, are very uh, real. I mean, uh, my own parents came to Dublin from Belfast to study. My son, before the pandemic, was traveling regularly from Belfast down to Dublin for his job. And two things I've been involved in myself personally, um, the Cancer Trials Ireland have been very much involved in um, reanimating a cancer a research consortium between North and South and the US National Cancer Institute and the Centre Culturel Irlandais in Paris. Um, it, you know, it, it receives um, uh, resident artists who are funded by the Arts Council of Northern Ireland, as well as getting funding from uh, the Republic. And then, of course, the levels of trade um, are very important as well. In the last uh, available year, um, 4.7 billion in sales of goods and services from north to south and 2.7 billion from south to north. Though, of course, in both cases, the overall figures are smaller than trade with Great Britain. And then you have the areas of official uh, cooperation. Um, and perhaps the most comprehensive account of all of these was actually in a document prepared during the Brexit negotiations. It was published without much fanfare in August 2019, it was a joint mapping exercise carried out by the British government and the European Commission with the assistance of the Irish government. And it identified no fewer than 154 different areas of cooperation across a very wide range of sectors, agriculture, health, education, justice, security, energy, arts, culture, etc. Now, some of these I think are probably much more substantial than others. Um, others may be largely matters of aspiration or, or rhetoric. But even to look at random at the list, um, it's quite extraordinary. You have the wholesale electricity market, a very big deal indeed. You have cooperation between school inspectorates, north and south. You have the national pollination, the Irish All-Island Pollination Initiative. Um, you had flood, flood risk management. You have road and rail safety, etc., etc. So there's an extraordinary amount of work going on. And you have six implementation bodies and the North South Ministerial Council as, as well. 
And as the North Tax Ministerial Council has suffered over the years, because when the executive hasn't been in place, it hasn't been possible to have cooperation, to have meetings uh, involving ministers, but the bodies continued their work notwithstanding. Uh, and last year, um, after the, um, the, the reinstatement of the executive and the assembly, um, there were meetings in all of the relevant areas of the NSMC, all of the sectors deals with. There were two plenary meetings involving the first and deputy first ministers and the Taoiseach and Tosh and others, and two meetings between the Minister for Foreign Affairs uh, and the first minister and deputy first minister. And then, of course, the third positive, um, which I think Pete mentioned in his slide, one of his slides, is of course Taoiseach's Shared Island um, Initiative. Now, this is an important, um, uh, important statement on, on this part, just how uh, much value he and the Irish government attach to North-South cooperation. And North-South cooperation without any agenda other than people on the island working together to mutual benefit. Um, as everyone knows, there's a 500 million euro fund which has been made available uh, to the initiative. There's a new focus on strategic challenges such as climate and biodiversity. And the hope is to finalize a number of investment projects, such as the A5 road to Derry, um, which, has, which have been in abeyance for a long time. Now, these are all great positives. And I would say that my personal knowledge from the Michal Martin's uh, sincerity uh, on this matter and his determination to avoid old style polarizing arguments are absolutely genuine and sincere. I worked for him years ago, and he was exactly the same then uh, as he is as he is now. But a few questions then: How vigorous is this cooperation in practice? Like I say, there are 154 uh, areas listed in this document, um, and it's most impressive. But like I said, I think some are much more active and much more impactful uh, than others. And it is interesting to note that I mean. In the paper I referred to about health cooperation on the island of Ireland uh, by Professor Deirdre Heenan of the University of Ulster, which came out as part of that Royal Irish Academy initiative I was mentioning, and then in the comment um, on it by Professor Anne Matthews, who's from DCU, they agreed that while in many ways there are obvious advantages to greater cooperation between North and South, there are major obstacles uh, to it happening. The, different, the financial basis of the health services in the two countries are very different. The structures are very different. And they would argue too that you know, while there have been some very good individual initiatives, such as the Northwest Cancer Initiative headquartered in Altagelden Hospital in Derry, and there's also a congenital heart disease um, center as well, as I understand it. But the reality is um, that in many cases, there isn't a great deal of political impetus or push from either side uh, of the border. There's been a lot of debate about COVID uh, whether or not cross-border cooperation could have been better, whether one um, whether one response was more effective than another. But they would argue that overall, um, there are major challenges. And one of the points they made, in fact, is precisely that we don't actually have viable statistics um, on which to uh, on which to look carefully, uh, on the basis of which to examine carefully uh, potential in this area. So that's an example. It's an obvious area. It's one which everybody mentions. But in practice, while impressive things have been done, um, there are any obstacles to, uh, to more effective engagement. Also, I know from my own experience that North-South cooperation is often not a priority for government departments um, and for, for ministers. Now, there are some who have a personal commitment 
and there are others who take their their cue, of course, from the Taoiseach and, and successful Taoiseach. But you know, there are no vote put, put crudely. There aren't. Any, there's no one voting in Northern Ireland. Will vote. In, you know, will nobody will be in voting in a core constituency will be directly affected much by North South cooperation. Often there are no particular incentives um, for departments to get engaged. My own experience always was that the Department of the Taoiseach and the Department of Foreign Affairs often had to whip along um, others uh, to show a greater degree of enthusiasm and initiative. Maybe that's not the case anymore, but it's a problem. And there can sometimes be competing interests. When we were looking at areas of North-South cooperation uh, back 20 years ago after the Good Friday Agreement, one absolute no-no uh, was cooperation on inward investment. Um, the IDA was very clear. It was competing internationally for inward investment and Northern Ireland was in a way a competitor. The final problem, which I might just finish on, is that politics, of course, is inseparable from North-South cooperation of a practical kind. The history of North-South cooperation, politically very, very fraught. People may remember that you know, the Council of Ireland envisaged in the 1920 Government of Ireland Act never came into effect. The Council of Ireland agreed at Sunningdale in 1973 was one of the reasons, though maybe not the main reason, why unionism ultimately rejected the agreement. And in the Good Friday Agreement negotiations, hard as it may be to imagine it now, the, um, the north-south uh, aspects, the Strand 2 aspects, were the most hotly contested um, between the Ulster Unionists and the Irish government uh, and the SDLP. Um, and in fact, right to the very end, they were hugely difficult. Um, and I think in a way, one of the issues has been, is north-south cooperation about practical benefit or is it symbolic as well? And if it's symbolic, is it preparing for a united Ireland? Um, or is it actually an alternative, possibly, to a united Ireland? And those questions are always there in the back of people's minds, no matter how practical and sensible the cooperation can be. Unionists over time have been very cautious about full engagement in the North-South institutions. The DUP, especially at the beginning of their time in office, were really hesitant. Um, and also it's revealing and sad that one of the immediate reactions uh, to the storm over the protocol uh, has been uh, a rush to halt um, any certainly high profile north-south engagement. Um, so politics is always there. Uh, and the question is, how do you manage north-south affairs in such a way as to keep the politics away from them as much as possible, but knowing that there will always be a political dimension? And the reality as well is that I'd be interested, I hope that we'll have lots of good questions now this evening uh, about the issues Pete has raised and the rest of us are talking about. But I know myself that very often when you appear in this kind of panel, what people want to talk about is border polls and, re and referendums and what will the United Ireland look like. And to be frank, these issues are often more interesting uh, and, and grab the headlines more easily. And my final point is simply this. I think on the theme of interdependence, I think we in the, um, we in the South and all of us who advocate greater North-South cooperation um, as an end in itself, uh, but also because of what it does about bringing people together and understanding, we have to accept that many of the arguments which support North-South cooperation are also valid when it comes to cooperation between Ireland and Great Britain. And indeed, one might argue, between Ireland, Great Britain and the rest of Europe. Um, so uh, interdependence works in a number of different directions uh, and we aren't little cut off uh, entities, um, all separate one from the, the other. Uh, I'm sorry, well, I don't know if you're sorry that my face disappeared from the screen, but I'm sorry if my connection has made it uh, 
uh, has made it impossible to maintain the visual. So with any luck, um, I'll be back, um, uh, back again uh, to answer questions later on. Uh, good evening, everyone. It is my pleasure to be able to talk to you this evening. Um, in 2014, um, I became an independent member of the Northern Ireland Assembly. And to become an MLA, it's required that you designate as a unionist, a nationalist or other as per the Good Friday Agreement. And this is necessary to ensure cross-community uh, consent if required in decisions taken by the Northern, Northern Ireland Assembly. And that's given the nature of our deeply divided society and where we were in 1998. My constitutional preference is to remain within the United Kingdom, as I believe it is the best context in which to serve the people of Northern Ireland. Indeed, as someone who considers herself Irish as well as British, which is a wonderful benefit of the Good Friday Agreement, I believe that Northern Ireland remaining within the United Kingdom is the best context for Ireland to serve her people which I think is an important factor when we consider interdependency of these islands. Because for me, politics is about people and providing public services for those people. Therefore, it's entirely relevant to think about the best context in which to provide those services. So when I designate as a unionist, I'm thinking of everyone in Northern Ireland and how best I can be their representative insofar as public services. I in 2021 would really like to move the discussion away from unionism and nationalism being simply a green and orange concept. It's an environment in which we need to do our best for all. You know, undoubtedly, uh, both unionism and nationalism in Northern Ireland are enveloped in cultural differences, religion, community. And I do appreciate the context and the history of why this is the case. But 23 years on from the Good Friday Agreement, and in a state of relative peace. Unionism and nationalism, I think, do need to be viewed as a context rather than an identity, which is what I believe the Good Friday Agreement intended. It didn't want us to be neutral. It wanted us to be ourselves and embrace one another and respect one another. And perhaps that's the missing piece of the jigsaw insofar as implementing the Good Friday Agreement. I also want to talk about unionism generally and how it is perceived. Um, I am an independent unionist in the Northern Ireland Assembly. Um, the other uh, unionist parties represented in the Assembly are the Democratic Unionist Party, the Ulster Unionist Party, and the traditional unionist voice who's represented by one member, um, very similar to myself, uh, as in being uh, just one backbencher. So political unionism is, undoubtedly representative, representative by political parties who can be, who tend to have uh, conservative right-wing views. You know, indeed, um, the confidence and supply agreement um, that the DUP had with the Conservative Party would suggest that there's some sort of conservative uh, perspective coming from them. And not so long ago, the Ulster Unionist Party um, had links with the Conservative Party and Unionist Party of the United Kingdom, and they fielded candidates under this uh, umbrella title in 2011. So if we look up um, at the makeup of unionism in the Northern Ireland Assembly, I suppose I can go some way in understanding that unionism is characterized by those right-wing, more conservative uh, parties with traditional values. 
But for me, unionism is fundamentally a political uh, ideology which considers the constitutional position of Northern Ireland, either remaining within the UK or moving towards a united Ireland. And I think we nearly need to desensitize the, the cultural and religious and community aspects of what unionism and nationalism means, because I think that's important if we're really to understand why problems still exist within Northern Ireland. I think it would be remiss of me not to talk of the recent events in Northern Ireland and the recent unrest, uh, unrest over the last number of weeks. And perhaps that almost contradicts um, my ask of trying to move away from it being a green and orange issue and more toward uh, a contextual one. Um, as anything um, uh, to do with Northern Ireland, it's complicated. Um, and I think um, for me anyway, trying to understand um, what has happened in the last uh, number of weeks and, and from the unrest, I think it is, it's, it's a number of factors, but ultimately I think it is people feeling that they are not being represented. You know, and that in itself uh, points to why we can't characterize the, the unionism around parties like the DUP or the Ulster Unionist Party, because indeed um, the unrest that we're seeing seems to be happening within working class loyalist communities. You're saying that they are feeling disenfranchised by current political unionism. So so we have another example where unionism isn't feel, felt like they're being represented um, uh, at Stormont. I think people feel that they haven't been listened to. Um, the Good Friday Agreement um, uh, required the consent of, of loyalism to, to, to get over the line and be endorsed by a majority of people in Northern Ireland uh, when, it was, when it was put to uh, the people in 1998. And I, I think what has happened in recent uh, times, particularly in, in questions of Brexit and the protocol, it has given rise to concerns around not being listened to and not being heard and not being represented. And I, you know, whether, you know, that is, um, whether that has substance, to an extent, we're beyond that. I think there are a significant number of people who feel they're not being represented. And, and I think that's something that we need to look forward in Northern Ireland. The protocol in itself is essentially a trade issue, but as I've already discussed, it is giving rise to questions of identity. And I think that's something again, which perhaps even contradicts my earlier position about saying that we need to move away from uh, the constitutional positions um, as being cultural and, uh, and enveloped in identity. But the reality is that that does still exist for people. So I think there is a, a piece of work in recognizing um, what unionism is and what it means. I think um, another uh, observation that I've had in relation to the unrest and what has maybe given rise to this is there's the we are talking about the constitutional position, not just on the island of Ireland, but indeed right across the UK. And it is giving rise again to, to ideas that we may one day have a border poll. Um, and you know, then the people of Northern Ireland and Ireland will eventually decide. But some uh, people would almost suggest that that's an inevitable position, which it's not. And I think actually flies in the face of the Good Friday Agreement, because the most important part is, um, of the Good Friday Agreement is self-determination. So to be told that that isn't the case, I think, again, is um, unsettling people who assumed that they would have that they would have consent. And consent is a word that's being used a lot in recent weeks. So I think that's that's an important uh, consideration. 
And all of this then um, kind of uh, impacts on how things uh, are implemented in Northern Ireland, whether it's the institutions of the Northern Ireland Assembly and, and the, the government in the Northern Ireland Executive, but also those uh, uh, institutions that um, help implement the law. And recently we saw issues with that in terms of uh, the policing, confidence in policing. And, you know, it, it hasn't helped um, uh, recent discussions around that. So, again, to come back to my point is that everything in Northern Ireland does tend to be complicated. Um, and I think it does um, also demonstrate how volatile um, the situation in Northern Ireland remains. And perhaps that's something we should come to expect because, yes, whilst the, whilst the Good Friday um, Agreement was over 23 years ago, we are still in our infancy and in our journey and implementing the Good Friday Agreement. And um, I, I would like to get back to the principles of that. I would like to get back to what that intended. And I would like to fully implement it in the areas that we haven't done. And I think that's namely about bringing people together, reconciling, understanding our difference, respecting our difference, and trying to find a, a way forward for all. And you know, that's not just about Northern Ireland, that's the, the people of Ireland, that's the people of the United Kingdom, because we all do have a, a very important relationship with one another and particularly post-Brexit. And you know, I, I think the focus now after the politics of the last number of years needs to get back to people. So I look forward to hearing your, your questions and your comments on, on those thoughts. Thank you. Sorry, you're muted. Apologies. So thank you to all the speakers. Thank you to Eve for inviting me and to the team in the Long Room Hub uh, for arranging this. Um, I am going to talk about the East-West relationship and it will overlap with some of the themes that Pete has talked about, but really with everyone in, in different ways, as I'll show. I'm starting off by just briefly in a way defining interdependence, which it seems very academic, but obviously it means the, the um, deliverance of, of the fact that we depend on each other in various ways and the maximization of all those interconnections that we have and the benefits that they bring. But when I was thinking about this presentation and thinking about what's happened with Brexit um, on this island and between these, I thought of the concept of security community, which is a very well relatively old one from the 1950s, which was used to describe the relationship between the UK and Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, um, as a relationship that was peaceful and that was non-conflictual. This was meant militarily, but one of the terms used, or some of the terms used, um, were I suppose sociological, um, but the ones that stood out for me and still do were that countries and peoples should have a sense of we feeling and mutual sympathy and um, so that what happens to them affects everyone that, that there is this sense of being in it together and with Brexit of course that we feeling and it was never perfect or mutual sympathy but you know such as it was on the islands has declined and particularly between um, obviously London and Dublin um, but also between communities in Northern Ireland and between, at the moment, uh, uh, Unionists and the Irish government. So I took that as a starting point. And I, as Claire was talking about, really went back to basics, which for me and everyone has talked about, Pete and Rory, is the Good Friday Agreement. 
So I started off by going back to the basic question, why East-West cooperation? Why talk about it? Because it's something that isn't actually talked about as much. You know, perhaps at various times in the 90s, I'd have heard about it more in the late 90s and the early millennium, but it doesn't get a huge amount of attention. So the reasons, firstly and primarily, it's provided for in the Good Friday Agreement under Strand 3. Both the British Irish Council representing Wales and Scotland, the Dominion um, countries or groups, uh, Northern Ireland, Ireland and England on the BIC that meets every six months and the British Irish Intergovernmental Conference representing the British and Irish governments that is stated in the agreement should meet regularly to deal with issues of mutual concern that are non-devolved. Um, so it's provided for, it's there. And I suppose it was there for a reason that was very crucial. And that reason can be found very much in John Hume's approach to dealing with the conflict, to resolving the conflict in Northern Ireland. It was there because of his emphasis on the totality of relations that relations had to run smoothly and be managed and strengthened across the islands to underpin peace, that it was crucial. It wasn't subsidiary. And I think, um, I, I know uh, Rory will know more about this than me, and, but it, it, the focus seemed to become very much on strand one in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement um, on the internal um, relations within Northern Ireland and the executive and the huge uh, joy over the power sharing executive being established, but the strands were interdependent and that's stated in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. Um, so therefore, strand three, the East-West relationship in that way was never meant to be subsidiary. It was meant to be, you know, an, an equal partner in many ways. It was also, as I'm sure everyone um, realizes on the panel and knows more than me, it was there as well because it was a part of a package deal uh, for unionists and Rory has talked about the contentiousness of accepting cross-border cooperation in the negotiations that led to the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. One of the um, incentives was that there would also be emphasis on east-west relations and on developing relations within units within the union so that it was within that context and that was something which would be welcome for unionists and would be also it was hoped I suppose reassuring. The other reason why East-West cooperation, why I would look at it now is Brexit. Because as I said, starting off, Brexit on so many levels has threatened the potential for East-West cooperation and threatened existing cooperation, undermined it already. So most obviously the decline in trust between the British and Irish governments. But apart from that, we have the implications of um, barriers to trade of the fact that the British government did not opt for a soft Brexit, which affects Ireland as well, the Republic of Ireland, which has implications for our trading relations and road haulage and, you know, access to European Union markets, etc. So that has been a, a huge economic impact, um, potentially and administratively, um, the management of the ports, the modernization of Ross Lair to deal with that. Um, but also, as I said, politically um, creating a cleavage and division, which seemed to get worse over the years. It was definitely far worse than I expected when the referendum in 2016 happened. I expected there to be closer cooperation. That has not emerged and um, has got worse, um, particularly under the Johnson government. 
So there is a, a need to think about East-West cooperation intergovernmentally and also more broadly speaking as well. So strand three, as I've said, is to deal with issues of mutual concern. And the reason why now that is so important is to help compensate for the loss of networks now that the UK has left the European Union. So nearly uh, uh, you know, any, any institution that is there should be used, should be maximized to help, can't replace EU networks, but to help fill that gap, to ensure that there is maximum communication um, in formal talks and formal. And although of course, often formal things can neglect what is really meaningful cooperation, at the same time, I know from, from having spoken to representatives on the British Irish Council, although it's seen as quite a tame organization, it's consultative, many of them have referred to the opportunities to go for dinner after, to talk over coffee and the things that we associate with the EU. So these institutions are vital. They've been underused, um, but within the context of a post-Brexit world, they are potentially extremely important. And they have been mentioned and emphasized in the government's program for government, emphasized very much by Michal Martin um, as well in, in the shared island vision, but by, by the Irish government. And mentioned also by Theresa May when she was prime minister that there was a need for networks. She didn't specify these um, and the development of networks. Um, so it's, it's for that reason East-West is important not to forget and to emphasise, given the post-Brexit world, given Brexit. In addition, um, the focus really of, I suppose, of my research until quite recently was very much on that London, Dublin, Belfast axis. But in addition, East-West cooperation, paradoxically perhaps, um, has taken a, a dynamic move after Brexit, looking at Scotland, Wales, and relations between those um, areas and the Republic of Ireland and also potentially Northern Ireland. So that there was a galvanizing of energy around developing links that diversified away from just examining London. And that seems to be a side effect, partially a side effect at least of Brexit. Um, it means that if you look at interdependence within that context and drawing in what Peter said on the value of looking at interdependence where you're not focusing on binary issues, that we make that uh, non-binary approach even more possible because bearing in mind what Rory has said about the political obstacles to developing interdependence, if it can be placed within that wider framework as well, you take some of the heat and the tension out of the constitutional issue and the linkage of cross-border cooperation with nationalist aims, which is in, not uh, real in my opinion, but on the other hand, very much perceived to exist. And as Claire said, what is perceived to exist matters. If it's, if it's believed, you know, there are facts which will defend it for those who believe it. So um, having this wider context helps manage, in my opinion, that sensitivity and builds into Pete's approach to interdependence being positive. Other reasons why it's important to help encourage business cooperation and the British Irish Chamber of Commerce was established, um, if I'm correct, very much on foot of Brexit as well, to develop trade and business links between the islands post-Brexit. The other reason is back to mutual sympathy. Having that broader framework, having communication using the strand three institutions should and could help develop mutual awareness of each other's preferences, histories, beliefs, 
and pluralism in the Republic of Ireland, as well as policy exchange and pragmatic benefits as well. So these are all the reasons why, why it's important, why it, it should not be neglected. Um, the current situation, as I've said, is very tense British-Irish relations, a lack of trust, and an uncertainty about the role of the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference. So as most of you will know, um, there have been calls for it to be made. Neil Richmond in Fine Gael has called for it to, sorry, to be convened. The Irish government um, you know, would also uh, prefer for it to, be, to meet to, and to have that robustness really um, that was missing. And as I said, it has been mentioned by Micheál Martin. However, um, again, as most of us um, will know, it is very sensitive for unionists who regard it as unwelcome Irish interference. Um, and there is the issue as to what is its remit. So Brandon Lewis at the weekend said that, for example, policing and, and rioting, they are devolved issues. They are not issues that should be discussed in the BIIGC. So there's a question mark if there is such deep reluctance by some to use the BIIGC, then how much effort should be put in to pushing for it from the Irish government side? Should new bilateral arrangements be created instead? So that you know is, is to my knowledge where we are at in terms of the BIIGC. Um, my personal preference, as many or some people will know, is that it is part of the agreement, it has potential to be used, and it is an avenue that should represent the voices of unionists um, in the way that Claire said, that the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, whether rightly or wrongly, it is not perceived by many in Northern Ireland to represent their interests and to have given them influence. So the BIIGC is a way where the British government, by using it robustly, should represent unionist and loyalist interests. Um, and also the executive has a right under the Belfast Good Friday Agreement to have a role, to be consulted, to be involved in the BIIGC. I must speed up. Um, so accelerated cooperation, as I mentioned, has occurred between the other um, units within the UK and Ireland. We have um, a, the launch last year of the um, Scotland-Ireland Strategic Review and a smaller scale Wales-Ireland Review. Um, also, we've councillor offices, um, one of which reopened in Cardiff, increased staff in the Edinburgh councillor office. This is looking at the Dublin representation. And then we have Scottish um, representatives and Welsh in Dublin, Catherine Hallett and John Webster. In addition, a new councillor office has been opened in Manchester. So there's a diversification away from the Dublin connection, simply emphasising London, but really moving away to developing links across the UK, which could be nurtured, which is an example of how interdependence could and is being developed. Looking at what does this entail, and I was very interested listening to Rory uh, again on the cross-border dimension, you know, is it symbolic or is it pragmatic? Um, how important really is it? I'd argue it is largely symbolic. Um, it's focusing on, I suppose, soft issues. Um, but then, you know, if you're looking at relations between Scotland and Ireland, they are often soft issues generally compared to the more contentious cross-border relationship. Um, so it's looking at cultural cooperation, higher educational cooperation between the universities post-Brexit, looking at business relations, looking at the diaspora, um, the, the numbers um, who are of Scottish descent living obviously in Northern Ireland particularly, but also in Ireland, and then the numbers of Irish descent um, in, in Scotland. Um, examples of this um, poetry cooperation, poetry competition, looking at, looking at the, the poets of 
Northern Ireland and of Ireland and of Scotland. Um, quite a big initiative on St. Columba, St. Colm Kill, um, his connection, Iona, um, and trade missions. Wales, similarly, it's looking at these soft areas, um, cultural areas. So the future scenario, Brexit has caused momentum um, between Dublin, Edinburgh and Scotland. Where I found a gap was where is Belfast? And I, I think the, the um, stop-start executive situation and the collapses and the restoration, the issues politically within Northern Ireland itself, Brexit itself, perhaps have hindered a more progressive approach institutionally, um, but I'm open to be corrected about that, um, between um, the units, um, paradoxically really, um, given that they are part of the east-west broader dimension that should attract unionists. Um, obviously there is damage. Um, there is an attempt to reset the British-Irish relationship intergovernmentally. It is unlikely to be the way it was, given that the UK has left you know, even in the best scenario. And there probably will be, there will be new bilateral institutions. There is a question mark about what the role of the BIIGC is, not that it's gone, but where does it fit in to the future, given the hostility by some to it? The UK has left, so the framework has changed. And there is the question for the Irish government, how much effort does it put into UK relations when its alliance body is the European Union? For Northern Ireland, that effort is essential. Um, and I, I'm sure the Irish government would, would see that um, most clearly um, various parties, although obviously again, not all um, in Northern Ireland would see it as essential, but there is an issue of where does the attention go? And it's interesting therefore that the shared island unit, contrary to what was requested by Steve Aiken in the UUP is the shared island unit, not shared islands, um, perhaps reflecting that a little, but also reflecting, I think, uh, Michael Martin and Rory will know this more than me, but his strong commitment to reconciliation on the island, seeing how things have slipped between communities in Northern Ireland and cross-border as well. Um, so the, the argument therefore is that um, the, these are the challenges. Um, there's a big challenge of Scottish independence. We'll see in the assembly elections what happens, but this idea that interdependence between the islands was a reassurance to unionists that is questioned when Scotland, or if, not when, sorry, if Scotland becomes independent. Because where is the reassurance then uh, between relations, and, you know, um, interdependence and communication and the east-west dimension when Scotland is actually independent, no longer part of the UK? And most obviously as well, Irish unification, really, that the, the more emphasis on that, the more there is a call for a border poll, the prioritization of that in that binary way that Pete mentioned, the more that is done, the harder it is really to have a, a flourishing interdependent relationship on the islands. And even in Scotland, the SNP is wary of being linked too much or at all to the Northern Ireland context because of the history of conflict. It is wary even, um, so I have heard, of um, being too connected to Sinn Féin because of any allegations of being connected to conflict in the past and, and um, the IRA. So unification, by emphasizing it too much, puts a spanner in the works actually in various ways um, of developing a flourishing interdependence and the trust necessary um, for unionists to engage with that. Hey, Tane, so I'm, I'm gonna come in at that point because I, I know that you've got lots more to say, but you'd be astonished at how many people are asking the question about Scotland. Um, okay. so I, I, I hope I can just 
to get to those questions, just interrupt you at that point yeah, that's fine. Um, with apologies. But um, I, I, before we go to the questions and lots have come in, uh, are there any of the panelists um, who spoke before Retain who want to come in briefly just to pick up on any, briefly as possible, on any points that they heard from their fellows? If so, wave at me and uh, Pete, and jump I, I think, quickly I there. It's actually, uh, I think Etienne's is actually spot on. Uh, strand three is critical to how we solve the protocol Brexit, the disaster, whatever you want to call it. And it is, uh, I think at this point, any of us have any energy or capacity, it is how we really start to uh, talk about how we restore the East-West uh, relationship. I think that's critical to good relations. The protocol was too heavy in strand two, and we've ended up in a situation now in which the assembly has no real say over what will happen via the protocol, and strand three, yet again, there's very little uh, capacity to influence the protocol through that as well. So I think that's something which is really important to hear and something for us to all put our energies into over the next few months. Thank you very much. And uh, and that's very decisive, Pete. But but let's let's go to some of the questions. Um, and we've uh, we've lots of them in. So I'm just going to um, go first to Niall Martin. Niall, uh, a journalist, very, very good to have you with us, Niall. But uh, he's asked a question, which I think he's put beautifully using one of the terms that keeps coming up in, in the context of Northern Ireland. Uh, with constructive ambiguity in mind, is there a way of having a 32 county entity that doesn't have an ownership aspect? Um, and I, the, the question goes on, but I'm, I'm going to stop it there and maybe begin with you, Claire, on that, because you began by alluding to the provision that the Good Friday Agreement makes to be British and Irish, to utilise ambiguity in a constructive way. It's something we might aspire to, but at a grassroots level and, and realistically, is constructive ambiguity around either terminology or around the protocols of constitutional possessions, let's put it that way, is it in fact feasible or realistic to think in those terms? And I wonder, in asking that question on Niall's behalf, you might talk a little bit about the assembly itself as you have direct experience of it and whether that idea of a constructive ambiguity has any mileage within the chamber. Um, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, often we hear in Northern Ireland people talking about moving away from the green and orange politics, as I had talked about in my initial uh, contribution. But the, the remit and, uh, of the Northern Ireland Assembly and its ability actually to do anything about the constitutional position in itself is limited. And the only reason we designate as a unionist or nationalist or indeed other is to ensure um, a, a balanced cross community representation if, if there are any votes um, that tend to be contentious and, and are required um, by that. Um, and, and on a day-to-day -day grassroots level, this isn't something that comes up very often for me and indeed perhaps the last number of weeks, um, and I, I think even increasingly since Brexit, um, people have been starting to talk about their kind of constitutional preference. And I think that has come out of the, co the conversations around a potential border poll and you know what uh, Brexit brought with that. Um, 
I suppose it, it demonstrates, if anything, that 23 year, years later, we are still deeply divided. And I, you know, I think it's important to come back to the point about how the Good Friday Agreement in itself has never been fully implemented, yet we have suggestions that we move towards something else, a new model. And I think if we get back to the principles of the Good Friday Agreement and recognise that there are two very distinct communities within Northern Ireland, as well as others, it's not just unionism and nationalism, there are other people who don't identify with that at all, but it is the fundamental basis on which we were able to move forward. And maybe the conversation shouldn't be about changing the Good Friday Agreement and it should be more about genuinely implementing it. Um, and you know that does include East-West, North-South relations. It, it, it's about everything. For me, how we make Northern Ireland work, Ireland work, the United Kingdom work, is that we, we provide the best services from a, from a governance perspective. And, um, in doing that, that means we have to look at society and what that means. We have to look at our socially deprived areas. We have to look at the health service, you know, and um, we, we have to look at opportunities that exist cross border, but also east west. You know, I, I hear this often that, you know, people in Ireland don't want us, people in England don't want us. My unionism isn't on the basis of what people in London want or what people in Cork want. My unionism is on the basis that I, as, as, as someone who lives in Northern Ireland, has a valid. Uh, uh, role to play and I have my seat at that table of being within the United Kingdom and I, and I use this phrase often whereas some of our parts that's what about being in the union is about and I, but I think we strengthen that by this this conversation around interdependency which I think is important and people ask me you know what do you think if, if Scotland I do think it will be difficult in terms of the the geographical position of the United Kingdom and, and you know the, I suppose the integrity of the United Kingdom but equally um I, I, I think we we need to look at this on, on a wider context and what it means to be part of the union and what each of us brings to that. Yeah, thank you, Clara. And uh, I'm going to pick up on moving from the conceptual question that we put to you to a much more fundamental and practical one, combining questions that have come in from two people. Bill Emmett, chair of the Trinity Longroom Hub, has asked about infrastructure and joint infrastructure development in particular and, and at this, the basic level of rail and road transport, how ports are operating, why connections don't work even on a north-south basis, Belfast, Dublin, in the way that they might work between London and Birmingham. But I want to link that infrastructure question to a point that uh, has been, it's come in indirectly from, uh, from I'm just going to get the name here, uh, Gerard O'Malley, who um, is writing about education, but in fact, I'm going to leave that aside for now. And Gerard uh, refers to the fact that he was involved in Enterprise Ireland cross-border initiatives after the Good Friday Agreement. Now, Rory, coming to you, you talked about one of the hesitations of uh, interdependence being around the area of investment. Etienne, you've alluded to the work of the British Irish Chamber of Commerce. Is this the, the area in terms of economics as well as infrastructure, but in terms specifically of business, that we're not getting enough interdependence and interrelationships and effort being made. Uh, that of course government financing is coming in, but a business culture has not adopted independent interdependence uh, as, as enthusiastically as it should. And then I'm gonna harness that question to the question Bill Emmett has asked about infrastructure. Is that where we're falling down? I don't know who wants to take that. Rory, I might come to you on the business question. Why sure. has business not taken charge of this and made things work? By all means. Well, I think, first of all, in fairness, um, you know, there has been a lot of effort 
um, both by governments and by representative bodies like IBEC and CBI, as I as I mentioned. Um, and you know, there has been an increase in levels of trade between North and South. Um, and there's a great deal of cross, as we you know, well discovered during the debate on Brexit, an enormous amount of sort of daily cross-border uh, activity. And uh, um, I can't remember, Simon Coveney used to always talk about, you know, I think chickens, which were, you know, um, eggs were laid in the South and chickens born in the North or, 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 or vice versa. So there's a lot of interaction. Um, but businesses in the end have to make business decisions. Um, and have to decide to what extent they want to enter new markets. Uh, and the reality, of course, is, as I said, that you know, certainly pre-Brexit, the relationship with Great Britain uh, was more important for both North and South separately um, than the relationship uh, between them. But I think, you know, in terms of the activity of state agencies, Intertrade Ireland is one of the North-South bodies. You know, I think, I think you know, quite a lot uh, is being done. Just on investment, then. Um, I, mean, just, I, I was talking specifically about inward investment, investment um, by foreign companies. And of course, we have different offers in terms of corporation tax, for example, um, and, and you know, in, let, let's be very blunt about it. The IDA did not want the albatross of Northern Ireland emerging from violence around its neck um, as it was trying to sell Ireland as a location for inward in, 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 in investment. And I'd say it's competition. And if you're, a, if you're a, an Irish politician, would you rather see jobs go to constituency in the Republic or constituency in the North and vice versa. So, but that's that's perhaps a very specific specific case. I think there's an interest in developing trade. Physical infrastructure, again, it depends. I mean, there has been an enormous investment um, in the Republic over the last 20, 30 years, initially with EU funding and then with our own. Again, as a kid, I remember part of the great excitement about going to visit my relations in Belfast was the, 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 the fact of going at all of 60 miles an hour on the M1 um, with my with my parents, the only motorway um, in the, on the whole island at the time, but now, of course, as anyone can see, the road network in the Republic is much superior to that in the North. So lots of investment has been has been has been made, um, but again, part of it is the is is, is money. I mean, there's much talk about a Dublin Belfast rail corridor, and there's no doubt that it's mad that you can the the bus gets to Belfast. You know, you get to Glengall Street on the bus from Custom House much faster than you get um, to Lanyon place mm. uh, but you know but again you're talking enormous sums of money um so i think there there is there there is scope for more discussion and analysis but at the same time when spatial plans are produced for for longer term economic investment and infrastructure investment you know they they tend to be pretty focused on, on what happened to be the priorities at any given time of those yeah. making the spending decisions and and thank you Rory. And I, I know pete pete's trying to get in there as well pete a response on that one I think it's really important we, in terms of new thinking and interdependence and the realities of the island, that we stop thinking about two economies. Mm. Uh, Belfast is a strong, vibrant economy. Dublin clearly is a strong, vibrant economy. And we've had a very clear look of this one where she lives, an abandonment of rural Ireland, north and south. And it would seem to me that that that, what, that is one of the problems as we think about these two places uh, as, as having two economies, when in fact they, we have on the island probably four or five economies. So I think first of all, we need that conceptual breakthrough. We need to start thinking in that way. Uh, clearly, if we were talking about interdependence, what we should be talking about is how do we drive economic growth from Derry to Limerick? How do we how do we take those places in that have been abandoned? And how we set this as a project? Now, the big problem, of course, is the, the economic model in which we live in, this neoliberal model, is not about diffusing wealth from the cores, Dublin and Belfast, 
out to those rural areas that have been abandoned. So I think that's important. I think also what is really important is how we get that business sector to start thinking uh, north-south. And, and I think what's really interesting, you know, this goes back to this nonsense about, you know, uh, unionism is a homogenous thing. Uh, I'm sure when there's DUP uh, politicians who are not particularly keen in north-south trade, uh, I will tell you that my pro-union uh, business friends are putting their hair out. They want nothing more. They, they want to make income. They want to have investment. They want, that's what they want. So it seems to me that it's not guided in that way. And it comes into the touchy politics. But the role here is for civic society. For us to build a new Ireland, whether we stay constitutionally separate or we join, there's a much more important role for civic society to bring in evidence, to, to, to challenge policy, and to put forward alternatives for the island. I think that's really important. And it's something the Good Friday Agreement hasn't really driven in the way that it could have done. Well, I'm, I'm pleased you touched on the urban-rural uh, difference uh, there, Pete. And in fact, a, a question that's come in from Miriam Ryan uh, is, I think, a very interesting one. And she's talking about poverty in North and West Belfast, because, of course, we've got a difference between urban and rural. But even within Belfast itself, we've got uh, various different levels in terms of economic uh, um, wealth uh, and, and health indeed. Um, so we're not talking about a level playing field across Northern Ireland at all. And, and you've made that very clear. Um, and Ireland indeed as well. I think that, that that's well recognised. Um, let me come to the question that's come up from a lot of people. And it's uh, certainly, I'll, I'll put it into, I'll use the words of uh, uh, Andy Murphy, a professor of English in Trinity, who's asked about the implications of a Scottish referendum um, for the situation with Northern Ireland. Etain, I'll come to you on that because obviously you, you, you began to discuss the archipelago as a whole uh, in this respect. And I wonder if you could look again at the question of, of what might happen in Scotland, um, but also if I can add a rider onto that, which I hope is not inappropriate, but uh, the, the, the east-west relation might well now look a lot further west are there any implications we need to think about of a new government in the United States that have to be factored into interdependence in a, in a different way at this point? Well, um, yeah, I think firstly on Scotland, it's a crucial issue um, because, you know, really there's been a series of polls which show increased support for independence and polls showing support for the SNP. And as the paper yesterday showed, is it, um, I'm trying to remember, Kieran Martin's paper, that regardless of which party, now there are divisions that the Scottish people vote for, if they vote for a constellation of parties all wanting independence, that's all that counts in the next assembly election. So I think it's very crucial. It's crucial for the drive uh, for those who are trying to achieve a border poll more imminently than others. Um, in Ireland, that you know could give a fill up to that sort of movement. Um, particularly with the argument that then Northern Ireland can be in the EU and that's been a, a motivation for Scotland. So it's very crucial and it changes, as I said, the framework if there was an independent Scotland. Um, it changes the relationship even with talk of it between, in, in my opinion, between unionists in Northern Ireland and Scotland, where it's less clear cut that there is, you know, that sense, I said, as I said, of, of Britishness. Um, on the US dimension, um, I feel Rory might be better equipped uh, somehow <laughs> answering that, but um, I, I think it's obviously positive for Ireland that President Biden is in power. He always stresses his Irish roots. Um, 
He's also obviously a, a shrewd, pragmatic politician. He won't want to alienate the UK. And we've had recently the corporation tax announcement, which obviously would undermine Irish interests in that area. So I think he's, he's, it's very helpful he's there, particularly compared to his predecessor. Um, I think he will be very facilitating of any um, type of initiatives where US help would help, but I wouldn't either overstate his influence. Um, so I think that would be my answer. I did want to say very briefly just on the diversification of regional development that the Shared Island Unit does emphasize that. I mean, maybe there isn't enough money to do it, but there is an attempt to do that. So I just thought that should be mentioned in, in line with the last question. And sorry for going over time. <laughs> I no, not at all. And just <laughs> while I've got you there on, on the, the shared island uh, rather than island terminology or island rather than island terminology, Glenn Lochran asks that question. What is to be gained politically with the replacement of the title Ireland with Ireland in the shared island proposals? Um, I, that's uh, Glenn Lochran from our partner institution, TU Dublin. Etain, I'll throw that one at you, but throw it back um, for later discussion. So could you repeat it? Shared island versus what? Shared island rather than shared Ireland. I think is what ah, Glenn well, is I, Yeah, I think that's really um, the attempt um, to, again, Rory will know this more than me, but the attempt to, to ratchet down a little the talk of a united Ireland. And Michal Martin's approach, um, he says it explicitly, is to build reconciliation. And he has talked about his experience as a student of going to Northern Ireland to hear, to learn about unionism, where he came from quite a or was had, had Republican feelings um, and how it changed him. So his priority is uh, reconciliation. And I think that is the reason because it would be an alarm bell to unionists to talk of a shared Ireland. And it already is because many do. Um, so that to me is the main reason. Indeed, thank you. And and uh, I'm noting just on the, the business question or enterprise question from Donald Denham reports coming in or report from tonight's news, North-South trade has increased 98% uh, since Brexit, whereas East-West trade has decreased by 53%. Um, so if those figures, if I'm reading those figures correctly, uh, that speaks dramatically to the discussion that we're having. Um, I'd like to come back to um, questions that are coming in really relating to the historical time frame that we're talking in and, and going back to before 98, way back to 1921. And and Pete, you, you I think were perhaps, uh, if I understood you correctly, uh, suggesting that, that people attaching historical baggage to the current situation are doing us a disservice. We need to free ourselves, to liberate ourselves with the kind of thinking that attended the foundation of Northern Ireland in, in 1921. Uh, but I wonder if I can attach that to what Claire was talking about as well, this idea of being trapped in particular teleological narratives, trapped in ideas as the, of inevitability, I think Claire was how you put it, that we're in a narrative moving us towards a border pole with a particular outcome and people understandably feel aggrieved and, and alienated by that narrative. Um, now, this is a question, I don't know if either of you want to tackle it, but in respect of that historical timeline, um, are there problems surfacing at the moment because we are thinking in terms of centenaries, because we are looking back to foundational moments, and because at the same time, this border pole issue pulls us towards a future which may not 
uh, um, necessarily help the current situation. How do we get out of those narratives? Um, Peach, Claire, I, I, this was something both of you, I think, touched Just one thing, quickly, sorry, uh, Eve. Uh, one of the reasons why the Taoiseach has to be careful is, we, you know, uh, good friend agreement, uh, you know, the, the territorial claim in Northern Ireland went. This is not the same as Germany, where they had a ministry that could uh, work for reunification. And clearly, within the Good Friday Agreement, it's the Secretary of State who calls a border poll. So I think if the Irish government ever set anything up which was uh, uh, promoting a united Ireland in a very direct manner, that would break the terms of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, we have to realise, of course, what we do is we, we, we always say in these conversations, let's not talk about the binary, and then we end up back in the binary. And to, I would assume that most young people in Northern Ireland are not sitting tonight wondering about 1921 and are not, and I'm sure most of the citizens of Northern Ireland are not doing that either. And I, and I think this is the way in which we don't understand or we don't promote enough the complexity of of, uh, of identity, etc. So, for example, 40% uh, of DUP voters are pro marriage equality. Okay. So, you know, the reason why they're, you know, their unionism is also obviously greater than their uh, support of marriage equality. So, so whenever we whenever we have a conversation about Northern Ireland, everything comes into binaries. If I was to have that conversation about the South and say everybody in Dublin was the same as everybody in Cork, and everybody, you know, you you you'd be you you'd be quite miffed. You 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 would find that you know that that's a bit ridiculous. There's diversity, there's regionalism, and so too is the case in Northern Ireland. The majority of people are uh, from the surveys that we produce. It's a slide I put up earlier. They are not sitting constantly having conversations about the constitutional issue. They're having conversations about uh, poverty. They're having conversations about education. They're having conversations about delayed adulthood. The same conversations that are taking place in Dublin. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so first of all, we need to we need to change the way we read the place because we stereotype it and we simplify it for our own our own ends. And going back to the question about 1921, you know, if we live in a society of globalization. We live in a society of gender equality. We live in a society of sexual uh, identity change, etc. And we live in a world in which, uh, you know, economic wealth or, or, or social mobility makes us more individual and less collective, then that's something we have to reason. So, you know, it, it's, it's the way in which uh, the media increasingly has become fixated upon the binary in Northern Ireland and is using the binary in Northern Ireland to reproduce itself. And when, and when you go on the media and you talk about Intercommunity engagement. We recently mapped 13,000 intercommunity projects in Northern Ireland in the last 15 years. You cannot get that stuff on the media. You cannot get recognition yeah. for that. So it is this maturity of thinking and, re and, and, and evidence with, 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 in which we talk about the place properly, which, which is critical to how we actually have this broader conversation. I'm getting away from the, the meta narratives I've been talking about. Claire, I wonder if I could bring you in again briefly as we're we're moving towards a close, um, either on this question of this narrative pull um, of inevitability, or perhaps on a, on a related issue, which has come in in, in a couple of questions um, from uh, Sean Darcy, Jared O'Malley, both asking about education. Now, obviously, usually with Northern Ireland, the question of um, uh, uh, integrated education is the one that comes up. But I wonder if I could shift the ground a little and say to you, do we actually need to start thinking about educating the next generation differently for interdependence and against the binary systems that, that Pete is talking about? I mean, is that where it has to start? 
Yes, education entirely is where it needs to start because you know I I, I think um, that's the challenges that we're seeing within Northern Ireland and if, if I suppose if we we do think about the violence over the last number of weeks, it's typically happening happening in the most socially deprived areas across Northern Ireland and that's not a coincidence. You know I I think what we need to do is we need to inspire those communities. We need to give them opportunities so that they can find a better alternative to this type of behaviour or indeed the, the paramilitaries within those communities that want to keep them down for their own criminal behaviours. So, you know, I, I think that is important. To come back to the inevitability question, you know, I, I can't stress enough that a united Ireland is not inevitable because, um, you know, people are saying that it is and because this, this conversation seems to be quite live at the minute. You know, I, I think what's important, you know, to be respectful of both communities within, within Northern Ireland and indeed those who maybe haven't made their mind up, we have to recognise that as per the Good Friday Agreement, the people of Northern Ireland will self-determine the constitutional position. And I think if we, um, if we start gaslighting people and saying that it's inevitable, then I don't think we should be surprised when people get a bit, you know, uh, insecure about their identity and their constitutional position. And I think that's quite a dangerous thing. And I think we need to be very careful around the language, even in terms of the conversation around a shared island and shared islands, you know, yeah. If if Ireland, um, uh, you know, is respectful of Northern Ireland and, and wants to recognise Northern Ireland's current position, that's within the context of the United Kingdom. So for us, that is islands. And you know, I don't think it's enough to say that we can have a north-south dimension without having an east-west dimension. So I think what you know what is being presented by you know Professor Sherlow is a really positive way of implementing the Good Friday Agreement and what was hoped for. Because again, what I think we have to recognise that yes, 23 years later, um, we have moved on considerably um, but there are still deeply divided tensions and I think it does come back to the point about implementing the Good Friday Agreement and I can't see any alternative to that to satisfy both uh, communities in Northern Ireland who still hold very important and valid beliefs. Thanks Claire and I, I know Etienne you were trying to get in uh, either on this point or the previous one and I can give you a minute Etienne if you still want to, uh, to come I'm back in. I don't know if Rory want to come in. I'll get you both in. You go okay. ahead. <laughs> Your turn. I think my point I was going to say it was around that shared island discussion as well. It was uh, Bill Emmett's question, I, mm. I think, or, or the other person's on trade. There are limits to trade. My PhD was on the impact of the EU on cross-border uh, trade and different things. And businesses, as Rory said, are pragmatic. So it's the same for Scotland and Wales. We compete, you know, whiskey, um, gourmet products, all of that, that there are limits. That was my point on that, I think. Um, right. And I guess Thanks, to echo Chair's points, I really like some of the arguments uh, I'm hearing. Absolutely. Uh, Rory, I can give you 15 seconds. Okay. Like it or not, the Good Friday Agreement does, in its very first article, present a binary choice mm. between a sovereign United Ireland and the Union with Great Britain. And either choice is legitimate. So I think the important thing for us all is to recognise that and to recognise that there is a legitimate nationalist aspiration as there is an absolutely legitimate unionist aspiration. The question is, is it possible for us all to carry, carry on implementing all of the, the wonderful potential for interdependence and the actuality of interdependence that has been described by Pete, that I have tried to talk about with North-South, that Claire has talked about, uh, Attain has talked about. Can we do all this while somehow while recognizing that we that we are we cannot get away from politics, this provides a backdrop. But at the same time, there's an awful lot we can do together. And I think, in a way, we had hoped in drafting the Good Friday Agreement, all this seemed like a very remote prospect. The question of a vote on unification, 
And I think the, the, the belief at the time was that the future should be left to the future to determine. Thank you. Autant, as President Mitterrand used to say. So I think that is still perhaps the best approach we can we can have. But the reality is there's also a legal obligation on the Secretary of State. So I think if what Pete says in, in his polls is turns out to be cor is correct and, and borne out, then the issue becomes a lot less acute than it may seem to be at the moment. But equally, if it doesn't, then unfortunately we are right back into a, a very difficult binary polarizing argument, which has the potential to spoil all that we can do positively together. And I think we all have to say, no matter what we, what our analysis or our aspiration, that there's a lot that is good that we can and should continue doing together. Thank you, Rory. And, and that's a positive note on which, unfortunately, to draw to a close, and uh, we are out of time, we will be returning to this subject. Uh, and uh, I, I want to close um, by thanking everyone who asked questions. I apologize, we couldn't get to all of them. Um, but uh, it, it was it was great to have the level of interest. I want to thank the team at the Trinity Long Room Hub for putting this together uh, and to thank our sponsor, the John Pollard Foundation. Thank you everyone who's joined us for this really important discussion. But most of all, thank you to the panel, uh, to Pete, to Rory. The Hub is a community. And to through the communities created by the world's The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. The